Real Impact is the podcast of Performance Development Group of Malvern, Pennsylvania. In each episode, we talk with colleagues and experts about the talent development challenges facing business today. My name is Rich Mesh, and welcome to Real Impact. In a pandemic world, many companies are turning to virtual learning as their only option. But virtual learning was always a great option. My PDG colleagues, Jenny Erdos and Justin Callop, share ideas on why virtual learning works and how it can keep working beyond the current crisis. Today, we are talking to two of my colleagues from PDG, Jenny Erdos and Justin Callop. Thanks for joining, guys. Hey, it's good to Thank be you, here. Thank you, Rich. So we're talking today about virtual learning. And today we are in the midst of a pandemic. And during this pandemic, a lot of companies are starting to look at virtual learning a lot more seriously than maybe they did in the past. And so I guess the first question I have for you guys is, what's going on right now that's making people think that virtual learning might not be so bad? Well, to be honest, Rich, I think a lot of people are thinking it's the only option they have. And in many cases, it may be. Most essential employees are still allowed to do work at this point, but the majority of American employees are not essential from an on-site standpoint. So I think the fact that employees are often not used to consuming learning virtually, facilitators are not used to facilitating learning virtually, uh, can be a challenge, but people are willing to take that leap and try it because they're not really sure how else they can solve their immediate needs. Yeah, Rich, and from, from my perspective, my thoughts about that question, before virtual learning or virtual facilitation was a nice to have, I'm going to get there, oh, wouldn't that be great? And all of a sudden, to your point, Jenny, it's this is my only option. At least that's the perception or the thought. And instead of it being a nice to have, it's become urgent. It's become our new mode of, um, of interacting. It sounds like for a lot of companies, virtual learning is sort of this, you know, rock and a hard place uh, decision where they're not sure they want to do it, but they feel like they've got no other choice. But of course, virtual learning is hardly a new idea and hundreds of companies I have been doing virtual learning for a really long time, long before uh, the pandemic. So what did those companies know about virtual learning that a lot of companies are just starting to figure out? I think the, the basic thing that they know, Rich, is that virtual learning is a great tool to have in your learning toolbox. It actually works. It's a, it's a very reasonable and impactful solution for a lot of needs. And it has a tendency to have the flexibility that can align with business goals, sometimes better than traditional learning does. Carving out time for a workshop and flying across the country doesn't necessarily enable employees, maybe in a sales role, to be client-facing all the time. So virtual learning offers some options that, while they may not be as familiar to everyone, can better align to business goals as well as deliver impactful solutions and maybe a more realistic and reasonable environment. I think that companies often realize that once they start delivering virtual learning, the way that it distributes across an employee's day or week or month has a tendency to support their business goals and the way that they work better than traditional learning does. Most of us know that if we learn something, and then we don't use it for three months, we probably will have to look it up again 
before we use it. With virtual learning, we can target the delivery of that learning just before someone needs it. So the point of use is much easier to control in a virtual environment than it is in a traditional workshop and ILT type environment. So it sounds like what you're saying is we can finally stop feeding people from the fire hose where we feel the need to teach people everything they need to know about a job in two or three days because we just spent a ton of money flying them in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and face-to-face networking and those t- things that companies invest in to get everybody in the same room are still valuable things, but they don't necessarily have to be coupled with a learning experience. They can be completely separate. So I think sometimes when investment is made, we use the investment to drive the learning experience instead of the content and the need of the learner. Well, and I think of all the workshops I've designed in my career where you had three days of content and then you had to leave a day free at the beginning for everyone to travel in and then a day free at the end for everyone to to travel home again. And suddenly your three-day workshop is taking five days of someone's work time. Yeah. And on Monday morning, the next week, the last thing those people want to do is pick up that workbook and apply it to their job. They're catching up on emails. Well, and the other thing, Rich, just adding to it, um, I love the idea, answering your question about what did those companies that had adopted earlier, the idea of virtual learning, what did they know? And I believe it rings true in this instance that necessity is the mother of invention. In many instances, these companies that are international, for example, in my work with international companies, they simply choose not to put the investments of travel to be in the physical same space, to be physically proximate with one another. They, they don't choose to put their money towards that. And so they've adopted out of necessity more of a virtual approach. And that has caused them to be leaders in the, or early adopters, if you will, of the virtual tools and the capabilities. And they have found that there are many benefits to the virtual environment that you don't necessarily get in being in person. Certainly cultural challenges are one of the biggest uh, challenges of virtual learning. There are certainly organizations who feel like it's not valuable if it's not done in person. And, And there are definitely people who feel like that if you don't take the time to bring them all together, that what they're learning isn't really important. Any thoughts on how you overcome that? If virtual learning does not engage the learner, if people are not called upon and expected to participate with their groups or with the facilitators like they would be in the classroom, they feel like they don't actually need to be there for the course to happen on its own. Sometimes organizations will create multiple virtual learning experiences, which is great, but they miss the opportunity to link those experiences to each other to create a more comprehensive learning experience instead of the small popcorning approach. It's really a mindset issue. Jenny, in a, in a webcast that we had done earlier in the week, had mentioned the, such the importance of mindsets, that mindsets going into this drive the experience. And so if you go in with a mindset that virtual is substandard to in-person, you're going to have those outcomes uh, manifest. The way to break that mindset or to shift or, you know, the mindset to use, you know, Thomas Kuhn's notion of paradigm shift is to have an experience in a virtual setting that is just as engaging as an in-person. And once you've had that experience, once you are are able and open to having such an experience, then, then the mindset goes away. And then you can actually begin to see the benefits of the learnings and the, and the upside to having a virtual engagement. That's a good point. And let's, let's stay with mindsets for a moment here. 
one of the most common ways people will do virtual learning is they'll take a, a class that was designed for the classroom and they'll adapt it to a virtual environment. And they'll basically take the whole course and just put it online. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a couple of things that are wrong with that. First and foremost, I think seat time becomes an issue very quickly. Um, most of the time when we have an instructor-led training, it's going to be more than two hours. It may be a full day, maybe a half day. That's way too long to be sitting at your computer participating in a virtual instructor-led training. Now, certainly there's opportunities to break it up and to use different modalities, but if you just do a one-to-one -one conversion, most of the time you're not able to engage learners in the same way. The reality is, is that everyone's going to have a screen in front of them and they're going to be tempted to surf and solve other problems. So I think one of the things that's really important for us all to remember when we do a conversion is just like any other learning experience is focus on what is it that the learner needs to get out of it? What is it the learner needs to accomplish? And what are the things that should happen in a live environment? And what are things that don't have to happen in a live environment? And be really thoughtful about the way that we break those different pieces out and how we link them to each other to create a comprehensive learning experience, even if it doesn't happen all in the same day. Well, and I know it's not one size fits all, but what would you say is the sort of the maximum amount of seat time people can, can stay still for a, a virtual learning experience? My preference for seat time targets tends to be 45 to 60 minutes. Maximum in my mind is honestly 90 minutes, although it's really going to have to be a very engaging course for a 90 minute course to keep people's interest and involvement. But I don't think there's a black and white answer, but those are typically the rulers by which I design. So if you did have, say, a full day workshop, what would you do with that? Would you break that up into three or four smaller workshops? Most likely. I wouldn't necessarily start with how many workshops it should be. I would start with what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, what needs to happen in a live classroom and what doesn't. One of the things that I find is a bit of collateral damage with flying people across the country for a face-to-face -face ILT is that we feel like once we've got everybody in the room, we need to make sure we fill up that time. So instructor-led training often has some learning push from facilitators that maybe doesn't necessarily need to happen in that environment. So I would start by calling out the things that people could really learn independently. And then I would split up the virtual learning experiences by activity. Sometimes you can marry a couple of activities together if they're particularly short, but really focusing on what it is we want learners to achieve in those interactive bits. To echo what Jenny said, Dr. Covey taught it so well. Habit two is begin with the end in mind. And to know where the destination is that you're trying to get these learners to is the best place to start as opposed to a, how do I get all of the content that's in my current ILT into a virtual ILT. So it's beginning with the end in mind that makes such a difference in how the learners experience the content in a virtual environment. It's a really good point. And Jenny, I think about when you talked about things that people can do independently, one of the challenges people often find with virtual learning is sort of the loss of the social aspect. I do remember reading an article which shows that when you look at evaluations for live courses, one of the things that people value most, often above what they learned in the class, is the ability to meet people they might not have uh, otherwise met, to get to know people better, to share lunches with their colleagues. For a lot of people, it feels like that would be missing in a virtual experience. So are there strategies people can use to make sure that virtual experiences are still social? Absolutely. 
I think one of the things to remember is that we don't also do our jobs the way we used to. Even people that are in an office for the majority of the day do spend a lot of time typically on the phone or in in meetings. And when we can align the way that we work and the learning experience to the way that we do work on the job, it tends to feel more genuine, in my opinion. I recently was doing some review of a number of executive MBA programs, and you'll find that most of those are cohort-based programs. And honestly, most of them require that the teaming activities happen outside of the classroom. I have never heard anybody complain that they weren't able to connect with their cohorts in an MBA program. And what I've found is that people tend to feel like it feels like the way they partner with people in their job across the globe. So certainly it may vary depending on who your learning audience is. But what I would do is I would try to align the social aspects as much to the way people are social on the job. So if people are having virtual meetings, have them do teaming activities that way. If they're using social sites like Slack or Skype or Teams, have them do their teaming activities in those same technologies that they use day to day. One of the strategies to actually increasing the social element of virtual learning is to always have the chat box up and available for people to chat privately as well as with other groups. And that actually becomes more social. Think about it for a minute. If you're in a group or in person inside a a room and there's four tables of eight people, you can't really even talk while the presenter is presenting in that environment to the person at table number four. And if you're at table number one, but in a chat session, I could chat with Jenny just as easily as I could chat with you, Rich. And while that might be something of a distraction, it's also an er an area of engagement. A lot of it comes down to both opportunity and expectation. Just like in any other learning experience that we might design, it's really critical that we create opportunities for social engagement and an expectation that that social engagement actually happens. In today's world where we obviously have limited uh, social options, the, the virtual happy hour has become very popular with a lot of people. And I think it's because everybody is really hungry for that social interaction. And I suspect that uh, in the future, when hopefully everything is back to normal, the virtual happy hour is probably going to stick around because people learn it's a great way to socialize without actually having to travel. So maybe virtual happy hours become part of our, our virtual learning agenda. I'll drink to that. So we've talked a lot about converting existing learning into virtual learning, but what about people who have the luxury of a blank sheet of paper? They're designing a a completely new learning interaction. What are some tips or tricks for, for those designers who have the luxury of designing from scratch? I don't think that it's an inherently different experience than conversion, other than the fact that people starting from scratch really have nothing to to begin with. They're not working on materials that already have exercises in them or have already been polished. So in the starting from scratch scenario, you may be starting earlier in the game, in which case I would encourage people to focus as always on what is it that we want learners to do after the learning experience is complete. With virtual learning, I think it's important to remember that there may be multiple modalities involved and it's critical to link those to each other so that it does become a comprehensive experience, but that each one of those modalities may check a different box. 
you may be creating foundational learning and an e-learning that you later follow up with in a virtual ILT for people to practice and discuss live. You may be asking people to do group work outside of a virtual ILT that they then discuss again with a facilitator present. So I think it's really important to continue to focus on performance that you want your learners to do after the fact and how each one of those bits and pieces correlates to achieving that goal. What Jenny said brilliantly about the content holds true. And in the project plan, I would recommend, one of the tips is, in the project plan, remember to include the facilitator element of the virtual instructor-led training. What is it that the facilitator is going to need to do or know differently than a traditional stand-up classroom setting? How are they going to be able to navigate the tools? Are they going to be able to work with the technology? Do they need a program manager to, uh, to run the program from a, or a technical director to help run the, the technical side of the interaction? So in the project plan, remember to think about the facilitator in addition to the content. And Justin, both of us have, we have something in common. We've, we've both done a lot of facilitation in our careers. From your experience, how is facilitating virtual learning different from being in a classroom? There are quite a few differences, actually. Whereas you are less inclined to use gestures, physical gestures, eye contact. And for example, one of the things I like to do is when somebody has asked a question or or somebody is making a comment in a classroom setting, I will physically walk towards them, which is a, a nonverbal cue that I'm giving them that time and space and I'm hearing them and I'm paying attention to them. So how do you adapt that to a virtual learning? One of the ways I found in that instance is to acknowledge them verbally by saying, yes, Rich, you had a comment. And that's the, that's the verbal way of walking towards them in the room, if you were in the room. Yeah, one of the things I miss the most, these days, sometimes uh, your virtual learning is done uh, with webcams and you can actually see your audience, but a lot of times you can't. And as a facilitator, one of my favorite things to do is to read the room, to look at people's body language, to look at their facial expressions. Do they look confused? Do they look bored? And I really, really miss that when I'm facilitating virtually. I did have the good fortune to attend the webinar that the two of you did recently. And one of the things that I noticed you doing is that you never went more than a few minutes without doing some sort of group activity, whether it was a poll or asking questions or soliciting input. Why is that kind of activity so important when you're presenting virtually? I think it's very similar to some of the strategies that you're referring to, Rich. It's It really has a twofold result. It works as an accountability catch, to be honest. If people know that there's something that they're going to be expected to do, they're more likely to be engaged. So from an engagement standpoint, it creates accountability. I think the flip side of it is it's an opportunity to apply things immediately or to make an extension of concepts that are being presented to other concepts. That's where we have to be careful too, because sometimes depending on the content that's being presented, we won't we don't want to do too many of those types of interactions or we don't want to do them at the wrong time so that they're distracting. But I think that they're really important to create accountability and also to allow learning to be extended to a different place in the moment. Rich, I, I believe too, um, similar to what Jenny is saying, that variety is one of the underlying principles to engagement. Um, we understand and we 
strive to have engagement in our interactions. And one of the ways to do that simply is by variety. So having Jenny speak for two to three minutes on a particular topic and then switching it up to have a, a different type of um, a visual, for example, stimulation where you're doing a poll. And so that sense of variety helps to keep people engaged. Another thing that I think it offers from a personalization engagement standpoint is you can ask people specifically about their expectations or their thoughts in a given moment. So you may be able to ask everyone in the room how often they do something. So it does allow the opportunity to personalize so that you can kind of pick and choose from their responses and cater your presentation to their responses as you move forward. One of the ways I think we commonly address these different approaches and different preferences in the classroom is we do small group exercises. So we put people in teams, we have them go off and do uh, uh, an exercise together, and then they come back and report out to the full group. Can you still do that kind of small group exercise in the virtual space? I think absolutely. And to be honest, I think you have more options because you have the ability to space those experiences out a bit. And in that spacing, you may also create an opportunity for those teams to use their work environment or problems that they're solving in their jobs to be part of that learning experience as well. So in an ILT workshop, you may have your small group in a small room and they're expected to solve a problem from beginning to end in 45 minutes and have some notes to debrief. Whereas in a virtual setting, you may allow them over a week to meet two or three times, collaborate, go back and do work. So the depth of work can be deeper. The depth of work can be more extensive and it can be more applicable. And then certainly that virtual instructor-led training can still occur where the teams bring back what they've learned, what they've experienced, what their output might be, and share and collaborate with other teams. So to bring this conversation to a close, right now there are a lot of organizations focused on virtual learning because they feel like they don't really have a choice right now. But this point in time will end and the world will go back to something like normal. So why should people continue to look at virtual learning even when they do have choices? It's a great question, Rich. I think people should continue to look at virtual learning because it allows learning to be distributed over longer periods of time, closer to the point of need. It also allows teaming and group work to occur in a more realistic setting to be applied at a greater depth potentially even to job tasks. All of those things, I think, make transfer from the classroom to a work environment to be easier. Um, not to say it can't happen very well in an ILT as well, but I think that virtual learning offers a lot of opportunities that should be acknowledged moving forward. I think this situation is, is a great opportunity in the learning space for companies to take leaps that maybe they, they weren't willing to or um, didn't have the, the ability to do before. I think one of the things to remember as well is that virtual learning can be as much of a continual experience as being in a classroom all day long. So the investment is clear when we link individual experiences to each other, make the relevance clear and tie it very quickly and very clearly to the tasks that we want people to do on their jobs. Rich, I, I consider the coronavirus and this, and this epidemic, this pandemic, as something of a blessing with regard to learning and development. That seems like an odd way to phrase it, but I mean it that way truly. Here's what I mean. 
it has accelerated the legitimacy of virtual learning as a viable option. So if we think about our learning and development quiver, now we truly have in our quiver an arrow that is the virtual instructor-led training arrow. We've thought about it before. Some early adopters have been using it for many years, but this pandemic and this uh, you know, worldwide situation has accelerated the refinement of bringing that arrow into our quiver. The now virtual instructor-led training is a viable option. And, you know, in many ways, I feel like this podcast is a great example of why virtual works, because here we are, three professionals quarantined in three different cities in three different states, but through the use of virtual technology, we're all able to come together and collaborate. Very well said. Absolutely. Jenny, Justin, thank you very much for joining us today, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a great day. Thanks, Rich. It's been a pleasure. Real Impact is produced by Performance Development Group. For more information on us, please visit our website at www.performdev.com.